0: This is episode number 158 with Brian Smith of The Founder Podcast. Discover exactly what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and what's possible through entrepreneurship from the greatest minds in business today. Welcome to The Founder Podcast. Here's your host, Nathan Chan. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm coming to you live from hometown, homegrown Melbourne, Australia, loud and proud. And I'm the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. For those of you that are joining us for the first time, uh, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation really really smart founders that are either number 1 or 2 in the industry and disrupting their industry and I pretty much pick their brains and find out how they've done it and just get them to share experiences and lessons learned. Now, today's guest you're in for an absolute treat. His name is Brian Smith and he's the founder of a company called Ug Boots. Uh, I'm sure you guys may have heard of them. I'm actually wearing mine right now. I've been wearing Uggroots pretty much my whole life. Um, so I go through him with Brian. You know what it takes to build a household name brand, disrupt an industry, and make something cool. How do you make a product so cool that everybody knows what they are? You know, companies all around the world rip off. You know these these products. Um, so what does that take? How do, you, how do you build a great brand? And it wasn't that easy, you know, it was it was a, from, I, I, actually, you know what, better yet, I'm not going to go into it. I'm going to let you guys listen and find out more about the story, but a lot of gold, a lot of lessons shared. Now, before we jump in, I just want to give you a quick heads up that we're just about to reopen our exclusive membership community called Founder Club. And, What is Founder Club? Why should you care? Well, pretty much we wanted to create a community where we combined and connected, you know, boss founders that follow the brand and just give people the opportunity to learn from really, really smart people. Uh, One thing that I've learned from one of my mentors is 2x thinking is how can I do this and 10x thinking is who can show me. So it's a closed private group. Uh, You know, there's a lot of free Facebook groups out there. Ours is a private group with really, really smart, vetted people. And we're particularly looking for founders that uh, are post-customer. So you've, you know, you've started your business, you have customers, but you want to scale your online business to, you know, at least a million dollars online. So, you know, there's tons of opportunities when you join the group. Uh, You know, we actually try and feature at least one person in the community once every quarter we do what's working right now we share with you all sorts of crazy strategies on you know how we use webinars to increase our average order value uh, per customer you know at least 5 to 10x uh, how we get interviews with really really hard to reach people how to find amazing mentors um, you know how we do all of our content strategy our social media strategies then also we have interactive q a's with really really smart founders some of these people we actually interview in actually on this podcast or on the magazine also you get lifetime a lifetime subscription to founder magazine and also a ton of SAS perks that are worth over ten thousand dollars And so much more. So if you're interested in joining a boss group of founders that are really, really smart that you can learn from and give help and get help because the life of an entrepreneur and founder is, let's be honest, it can sometimes be pretty lonely. So if you'd like to apply, you can go to founderclub.com, F-O-U-N-D-R, club, C-L-U-B.com. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job?
1: (laughs) My job at UGG?
0: (laughs) Yeah, your job, yeah. Like, how did you end up doing work? Okay,
1: I got it it because I had another job, which was in Perth, Australia, and uh, I was a chartered accountant, and it took 10 years to graduate. And the day I graduated, I quit because I really didn't like being an accountant. And uh, I decided, you know, after a few weeks of, you know, wondering what I'm going to do, a few bit of meditation, it suddenly struck me that all the best trends are coming out of California. So within a couple of weeks, I bought tickets and I arrived in Los Angeles with my surfboard and a suitcase and Rented a little house in Santa Monica, and I I came here to look for the next big thing to bring back to Australia. And uh, yeah, I was here maybe the first month, you know, did tons of surfing up at Malibu, but no big thing. And the second month, still no big thing. And it was in the third month that I was reading a surf magazine, and, and there was, you know, this guy from Albany, Western Australia, had run this ad for sheepskin boots. And, but, you know, you know if the photograph was in front of a fireplace and everything. It just didn't really fit. But anyway, I just got goosebumps when I saw that because I thought, oh, my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And so I called the guy up. And, you know, to cut a long story short, I got to be the distributor by buying some samples. And, and that's how I got my job.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, first of all, did you sell the company at some point?
1: yeah I got it up to about fifteen mil looking about twenty million season coming up, and it just outstripped my ability to finance it. So I had a really good buddy who had just taken his company public uh, on a sandal uh, product called Tiva, and uh, it was just the right thing at the right time. You know, I'd got so big that it was getting a little bit unwieldy for me, and i I love the startup phase. I'm not a real big fan of being in a corporation. So the timing was perfect. Yeah, got you.
0: So um, what what, what are you doing right now?
1: Mostly speaking, keynote speaking. I, I wrote a book uh, called The Birth of a Brand, and it's done really well. And that sort of led me to people saying, God, you come, should come and speak to my group, my group, my group, you know. And Bit by bit over the last three years, I've grown into loving speaking from the stage, and I've got a really you know, great series of keynotes that I can tailor to different audiences. And it's all about it's stories from the building of the UGG brand, but I weave into it a lot of spirituality and philosophy, and also the bare bones, you know, the boots on the ground tips that you you know about building business that you'll never learn in a business school or, or you know university.
0: Yeah, gotcha. So, this um, let's loop back, Brian. So you said that you saw an ad for sheepskin boots in in a surf magazine. Now you said you became a distributor. What did you mean by that? So you didn't um, well, I realized well, the concept, or
1: he wanted to sell boots in America, and I wanted to you know sell them. So what I did was I registered the UGG trademark in California because nobody else had been around who. Had done it. Nobody had heard the name really. Maybe a few people in the surf industry.
0: Yes.
1: And uh, and so I registered and I started selling them, thinking I was going to be like an instant millionaire because you know how many Australians wear sheepskin footwear, right? Mm. And and I started going up and down the coast to the shoe stores, and they were just shutting me out completely. They're like, you know, Brian, who who cares? You know, sheepskin in California, you're crazy. But I knew that the climate here in California is identical to Perth and Sydney and you know Melbourne and Adelaide. And so it wasn't the weather, it was just this fact that Americans didn't get sheepskin like Australians do. We, we know it breathes, so you can't sweat in it. You can get it wet. It's okay. It's, it's really rugged. You can't rip it. But Americans were thinking, oh, hot and prickly and, and delicate. You can't get it wet. We have mud and slush in America. And and uh, so there was this amazing disconnect. But you know, one of the po- things I point out in my book is that Every entrepreneur has to have a certain level of ignorance going into their their business because if you knew all the obstacles that were ahead, you'd never do it. And this just turned out to be one of those obstacles. It was a big obstacle too, you know, this this lack of awareness. And it took me years to figure out how to easily sell uh, the the product. But, you know, that, that first year when I got shut out by the these shoe stores I, I was thinking well you know how come all my buddies up at malibu think they're great and it struck me that they all surfed and and a lot of them had been down to australia on their surf odyssey and they'd brought a bunch of sheepskin boots back for their buddies so in the surf community it was pretty well known so i i i did a tour of the of the surf shops with my samples and i said yeah you know i'm gonna be uh, importing these and you know, they're going oh man you're going to be so successful those things are fantastic you know and every surf shop I went to is saying the same thing you're, oh those sheepskin boots yeah my buddies brought some back or they'd say yeah I, I own a pair and they're fantastic you're going to do great you know so on the strength of that without thinking that I should have asked for an order because I didn't I didn't have any inventory what was the point you know so I I raised some money and and bought five hundred pairs into uh, my little third bedroom, which was the international headquarters of UG now, and uh, I went back on the road to all these surf shops, and I had a full inventory and order pads and everything, and you know I walked into the first one, and he goes, oh Brian, well done, but you know we couldn't sell them out of our store we just sell surfboards and trunks and and bikinis and you know sandals and and but don't worry you should go to the shoe stores you'll you'll do great and and that was my first inkling of uh, uh you know and then the next one oh well done Brian but we couldn't sell them in our store we just sell surfboards and trunks and this went on and on and on every single surf shop that i thought was going to buy from me had an excuse why not to and so I, that, that was like late November, and by the time the end of the year rolled around, my total sales for year one was 28 pairs, just happened to be exactly $1,000, you know, and, and that was like so disappointing. But it became the theme of my book because uh, you know, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, you know, the, the Sydney Morning Herald, for instance, there's a stock exchange page uh, and look at all the companies listed there. Not one of those started without having to go through that first thousand dollars, mm, right? 100%. And yeah, so the theme of my book became You Can't Give Birth to Adults. And every business or every sitcom on TV or every religion or every sandwich shop, they all start with someone conceiving the idea and then they give birth by taking the first action, you know, for, for the birth of Ugg was buying the first six pairs of samples. And then every business or movement just goes into this horrible infancy and it just lies there and it lies there and it lies there and that's when most entrepreneurs give up because they think they're failing, they think it's not happening. But, you know, there's no amount of shaking the cradle or overfeeding it or urging it. The infant cannot get up and go to college. It has to go through the infancy. But eventually it'll start toddling, and then that's a really cool stage for your business because the first customers are sort of telling people about you, and you know people are writing articles about you and it's starting to catch some 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 traction. And that'll eventually lead into the youth, which is the best phase of every business where you've got consistent sales, consistent production, the accounting and billing is working, the customer service is great, you know the warehouse is fantastic. You can run a business up to twenty million bucks on in that youth phase, but if it's a really, really good product or a really hot service, you know, sort of like UG was, it'll hit the teenage years and then it's like all bets are off. You you remember when you wanted to be in every party around town when you were a teenager? Well, that same temptation comes in a business where you want to be in every trade show in the country and you want to be in every big retailer in the country and it's super, super dangerous because you can outstrip your financing so fast and I almost lost control of about two or three times in that teenage phase but you know, eventually it gets to a point where all the accountants start putting in the controls and it becomes mature. So that's the life cycle of every business and, and – the reason it resonates so much from the stage when I speak about it is that you know I have people come up to me after my talks and they'll go, "Oh my God, Brian, I was thinking of giving up my business this week, but now I realise I'm in the infancy or the toddling stage, and you've given me new hope and new heart." And so the you know the speaking and and my book, which which goes from birth to to handing the the you know the, the young child off to her husband, you know, when I sold it to Decker's, it, it's chronologically the story of building Ugg and all of the ups and downs that I had with that.
0: Yeah, gotcha. So when it comes to Ugg, uh, you, you came up with the brand though, like you you saw that someone was selling, selling sheepskin boots and you repackaged it under the Ugg brand, right?
1: Uh, yeah, re- repackaged as a, it, it's not correct because it didn't exist in America. Yes. And- I knew in Australia that you know this guy Shane Stedman in Sydney had registered UGH down there and so because there was no evidence of any product in America the the law here is you know, if you're the first in and you can prove continual use then you own the trademark so so that's how come I got to register argan keep it yes and then then I had to build a brand, a brand around the product because the first booths that came in were, p- were pretty shoddy, you know, yeah, and and
0: right. it
1: was just the way they made them back down there. So what I had to do was, was create a brand, and th- that's a whole story in itself.
0: Yeah, gotcha. So UGG is very well known right. in Australia. Yeah. But um, to, were you able to bring the brand to Australia? How did that part work?
1: Well, in Australia, um, I think they delisted it from the trademark register. I'm not 100% sure on that, but everyone can use the name UGG in whatever way they want to do it in Australia. And I do believe, since I sold the company, the the the, the new company Deckers, I think they have opened up some company stores in Australia. But you know, the the trademark issues really stem around international internet business, uh, where there's a lot of action of of, you know australians wanting to do their thing overseas but the american company keeping the tabs on on all of the countries where they have the registered trademark but we don't need to go into that now it's it's i'd rather talk about the marketing and the branding of the company because that's what your listeners are probably wanting wanting to know
0: yeah 100 percent um i agree uh just wanted to get some clarification that's all sure so um because um the Ug the Ug like you the branding piece uh is is a household name brand. Like yeah. everybody refers like where I'm from, like Ug Boots, you know, they, they don't they don't might not necessarily be B by Ug, but everyone calls them Ug Boots, these sheepskin that's, boots.
1: That's correct in Australia, yeah. Yes. So
0: yeah. and that's why I wanted the clarification. So talk to me like how long ago did you start the Ug brand?
1: Well, the first samples I brought in in 1979 and, uh, you know, that first year of sales was 79. And so, you know, I I was thinking this was going to be an instant millionaire type business. But after that first year I got shut out, I had to start, you know, I had 480 pairs left and all my investors' money was tied up there. So (laughs) I couldn't just walk away from it. And so I started going to swap meets and street fairs and, You know, the best thing I had going was uh, when I surfed at Malibu. I had a big van, and I I had it full of inventory. And I would just open up the back doors, and the word of mouth from all the people who bought from me was so powerful that every day I got more new customers. So, but the sales were only about you know five thousand dollars that next year, and then. I decided to advertise, so I hired some models and uh a photographer and we did a shot down at the beach here in San Diego and, and uh, you know, perfect hair and clothing and a perfect sunset and, you know, the boots looking perfect up front in the ad and, you know, I ran that in, in Surfer Magazine and Action Sports Magazine here and the sales went to like 10,000, which was super disappointing. So the next season I hired... Better-looking models and a more expensive photographer, and we posed them on the beach down at, you know, sea here, and you know, and and ran those ads, and and the sales went to like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, and and I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong until I was having a beer with one of my surf shop owners, and I was telling him this problem, and he just goes, "Oh, shut up, Brian!" And he calls out the back to all these little, twelve or thirteen-year-old grommets. He says, "Hey guys, what do you think of Uggs?" Every one of them just said, oh, those Uggs, man, they're so fake. Have you seen those those <laughs> ads, those models? They can't surf. And instantly I knew I was sending the wrong image to my target market, you know? Mm. And and it was so obvious, I, I almost kicked myself. So within a couple of days, I, I called up another Aussie, Pete Townend, who, who was a former world surf champion, and he was running a national scholastic surf club up in, in Orange County. And uh, I called him up and said, Pete, do you have any young kids who are going to turn pro soon? Because I can't afford to pay them. But, you know, I'd love – I really need somebody. So he gave me a couple of young kids, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And instead of posing them on the beach, I just took my little cannon sure shot with me. And we, we went surfing at a place called Black's Beach here in San Diego and another Trestles, which is up in – San Clemente, and these are iconic surf walks. You know, it's about a mile to get to the beach, and unbelievably good surf at the end of each one, and then another mile back, you know. So everyone who's ever surfed knew these walks. And uh, so I just ran ads showing these guys, uh, you know, walking to and from the beach, and I ran those in October, November, December, the following season. The sales went to like $200,000, just purely because i matched the image of what i wanted the kids to sort of buy into with with the ads and it was amazing but in the first ads i ran the boots were like you know a quarter of the ad you know by 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 area and when i ran these other ones walking to the beach the boots were like you know, not even a quarter of an inch on a full-page ad. You know, and so it didn't matter. I learned you don't advertise your product; you advertise the benefit. And the benefit for all these little kids reading Surfer magazine was, oh my God, if I buy a pair of Ugg's, I could be walking on the beach with you know, on on you know those those tracks with Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And it, it it struck a really emotional chord with all of the young surfers, and that's what just launched the business and just quickly that was the beginning of me understanding marketing and advertising and I eventually became a student I absolutely loved it and I was able to translate that into the ski and snowboarding markets and then you know back east where they don't surf you know I found that all the kids play ice hockey in the winter so I was able to use that same concept with young pro hockey players and that's what really built the brand into a national
0: brand yeah, got you. So you started with surfers and then started to to further niche out.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was the only way to build it really, but it wasn't easy. I mean, those first three years I was working summer jobs. Uh, you know, the first year I think I was scrubbing boats at Marina Del Rey and the next year I was a, a laborer, construction laborer in Bel Air up in Beverly Hills and the third year I was working – as a greenskeeper on a golf course all summer, just trying to survive till the winter hit, you know, so it wasn't easy, but the the beauty of it is I never gave up. I always, even though there were times on the golf course where I think, oh, yeah, that's it, I'm just going to get rid of the inventory, I'm done, you know, and so it did cross my mind to give up quite a bit, but I recall that... It was like October and that's the beginning of the, the winter season here and this huge storm hit the coast. And when I got home after the golf course one afternoon, the answering machine had about 30 messages from all the, you know, the surf shops just screaming for new products. So where I was one day about to give up, the next day I was full back in business again and that happened over and over and over.
0: Mm, so... How many years? At what stage? How many years? Like, was it year four that you started to get real traction, or like yeah, closing into about, the seven uh, figures? Or can you talk well, about that?
1: Well, that, that yeah, the, the, it was it was the fifth, fourth or fifth season where I noticed the advertising wasn't working and and ran the good ads, and that was that was what really kicked it off. That that first two hundred thousand in sales for Christmas. The next year we did about six seven hundred thousand because. Everybody who who had tried to buy the previous year, you know, all the stores were running out and I ran out of products. So it was then that it started to become a business and I had to get in a bigger investor to handle the new volume. And then I was able to work full time on it all, you know, all summer and bring in temporary help in the in the wintertime. So it was about the sixth year where it started to get real traction and became an actual business that was was outside of my bedrooms because I, I had three different apartment locations where Ugg was in my spare bedroom. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, wow. So talk to me about what it takes to create a household name brand. Do you have some rules and principles that you live by?
1: The most important thing for me in Creating the Ugg brand was the customer service, because you know your brand. Your brand is not your trademark, and your brand is not your logo, and the brand is not your product. The brand is what your customers think of it, right? Very critical point. That your brand is what your customers think of it, and so I was always out there trying to work with all my retailers to make sure the product looked good on the shelves and to make sure they had the right product and the colors and si- styles and sizes. And I just wanted my, every every retailer to be successful. And so what happened is that year after year, I would be out working with the retailers and and because they saw my dedication and because I had the inventory so well stocked in the stores that the product was working. And it, it was probably after about, I don't know, the seventh, sixth or seventh year, I was in one store, Encinita Surfboards, and I, it struck me, you know, I, I've i been selling these guys for seven or eight years, and this year they ordered about $80,000 worth of product from me, which means they sold it, you know, they doubled the price. They just made 80000 profit, and I thought, well, the rent on this little shop is only about 30000 a year. So... That's like fifty bu- fifty thousand bucks to pay the salaries. and And when I figured that you could pay half his staff on that, I thought, my God, everything else in he sells in this store, you know, surfboards and leashes and all that, it's straight bottom line. and and I, I started to realize that, oh my God, I'm not, you know, I, I'd always thought of sales as trying to get something from somebody. But now I realized sales was giving something. and i and and as soon as I realized that, My God, I'm giving this guy 80 grand profit, and I started to think of every other retailer I had, and I thought I started calculating how much profit I was giving every one of them. I then changed my complete attitude to 100% customer service and forget the sale. You know, the the sales are going to happen if you service the customers. And so you ask the question, what was the most important point in building the brand? Well, let's fast forward a few years when one of my financing partners died and the supplier i had didn't think i was going to be able to pull it together for the season and unbeknownst to me he started up with a different distributor over in california but he didn't sort of tell me black and white i'm out he sort of played along that he was still in my game as long as i could find some money you know and anyway got to be the you know close to the shipping time and i'd realized that you know this is bad uh I don't think I'm going to get any product from here and and by this time you know sales are 4 or 5 million dollars so yes I had I had to scramble I found another guy in in Melbourne a, a, who owned a big tannery and he supplied to a lot of manufacturers and he ended up producing product for me but very very late in the game in fact I I happened to go up to a trade show that you know in September which was our yeah, you know, every year was the, the show that sort of kicked off the winter season, and I'd set up even though I didn't have my supply intact yet, and I walked over and found this other booth, uh, a company called Thunderwear, which was a windsurfing company, and and they had taken on the the sheepskin boot line from my former supplier, and I saw all of my product on his shelves with the the label thugs, and oh my gosh. and I. And I just went, oh, my God, I am, I am out of business, you know. And I called up the guy in Melbourne who I'd been talking with, but we'd never really done a deal. And I told him what had happened. And, you know, he was sad. And we, we hung up. And, you know, I went to bed that night. And at 2 in the morning, he calls up and says, hey, screw that West Aussie. I'll get you all the boots you need. And, you know, I sent the patterns down. And he duplicated them and sent them out to a bunch of manufacturers. And pretty soon I was getting 5,000 pairs a week in, you know, at the end of September, October, November, December. And even though we threw away a million bucks worth of orders, we were able to stay in business with the UGG product. And the reason I'm telling this story, it's a little long-winded, is that between Christmas and New Year, the customs broker screwed up and he shipped 2,000 pairs of thugs boots to me and a 1,000 pairs of my boots up to, to the thugs guy. So because I needed my boots so badly, I, I offered to drive up and swap them around, and, and I did. And I was on the way back to San Diego. It's you know, about a 60-mile drive. I was halfway back, and I was thinking, you know, how come we couldn't keep product in our warehouse for 24 hours and it was gone, and yet these thugs guys – whose warehouse was bigger than ours, was floor to ceiling full of thugs' boots, right, unsold. And that's when it struck me, the loyalty of all my customers, you know, because of the customer service that I'd been giving, the loyalty was so powerful that they would rather forego, you know, a couple of million dollars' worth of profit, you know, combined, rather than deal with this guy who they knew, tried to knock it, up, knock me off, you know, and that was a, an incredible testimony to the amount of hours and, and time I'd put in becoming friends with all of my customers. And, you know, in today's world where things tend to happen with online web pages and clicks and b- purchases, if you're in the internet business selling over the internet, you must find a way to reach out and become more personal with your customers whether it's putting a handwritten note in the packaging when you send it you know something personal or whether you have a team of people that are calling up random you know buyers and you know thanking them and asking them how the product's working for them and you know it, it, those people who can maintain some sort of personal uh, interaction with your customers in this this crazy internet world they're the ones that are going to survive because if it's just a click and no loyalty, they'll never come back. It's just going to be another you know, who's who's faster, who's cheaper.
0: Yeah, gotcha. that's interesting. So whatever happened to that other brand? I, I
1: really don't know. On all these years I've been asked that question, I never saw them come in and flood the marketplace like the retailers wouldn't touch them because, again, I'd built up this incredibly strong, powerful image around the Ugg brand, and it was so cool to have a pair of Ugg boots at school that, that you know, when when moms who didn't know would buy these other boots, you know, the kids had refused to wear them to school because they, they were made fun of for wearing fake Uggs.
0: Yeah. You know? wow.
1: And so – they must have closed them out somewhere, I don't know, probably South America or something. I I have no idea, but I never saw them come into the marketplace.
0: Mm, interesting. So, sounds like um for a good long time it's um uh, was always a B2B play. At any point did you go to B2C, direct to consumer?
1: In a small way, but not really because I sold it in the late 95 and the desktop computers were just coming on to the desks at that time and the internet hadn't even started. So although I did do a few little warehouse sales and stuff like that to consumers, the answer is no, we were always marketed wholesale.
0: Yeah, got you. And, and when did you end up selling the company? Can you tell me how that came about? Because you said that um, you got to about 20 million and uh, yeah. yeah, you it was you late some 90- sort of maturity.
1: It was late ninety five. and and when I was starting the business, you know selling out of the back in, in the van in Malibu, there was another van, a couple of you know paces up with, with a this young guy selling uh, neoprene sandals, and they were they were like high heel sand, you know thongs, and they were triple deckers, and he start, started a company called a Deckers. And over the years he built that by bringing you know different brands on. He was basically a, a, a sales rep for different brands. And uh, he finally got the license for Teva Sandals, which I'm, I, I'm sure we're in Australia at some point, the TEVA brand, Teva. And uh, he took his company public on that brand. And I knew he was sitting around with about $25, 30000000 bucks in the bank. And I had just received a report from the preseason sales of, of UGG and I knew we were going to be looking at a $20 million season and I had no no idea how to finance the production, right? Mm. And, uh, even, with previous, and I,
0: even with previous profit and capital from, yeah, from because, previous years.
1: Yeah, well the trouble was that that the the bigger the company got, the worse became the cash flow because of the demands after the season ended. You had to wait for to collect all the money from the r- retailers, and but all the trade shows were happening. All the expenses were going out the door. New samples, which cost a lot of money because we had 30, 40 reps at this time, and they all had to have a full product line of samples. So, you know, there was hundreds of thousands of dollars having to go into this pre-season stuff, and then, you know, w- when, when you were only ordering, uh, you know, 500 pairs of boots, the manufacturer could bankroll you, but now you want – 500,000 pairs of birds and, 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 you know, they can't do that. So it, it became a financing issue. But anyway, I, I was uh, traveling to a, a big trade show called the super show in Atlanta uh, one year in 95. And I knew I had this problem cause I'd just seen the reports and down the other end of the baggage claim was Doug and I just got goosebumps, and I thought, "Oh my God, it's so perfect." We we joked about buying each other out when we saw each other on the road. You know, where we would joke, "Ah, oh, you can't afford me," and so. But you know, I walked down the baggage claim area, and he saw me coming, and we we high fived, and I said, "Doug, if ever we're going to do it, now is the time because his company died every winter, and our company died every summer. So by putting together, you had a twelve month." Round cash flow and a twelve-month warehouse operation, a twelve-month sales operation. Everything mm. just clicked so perfectly, and so by the that afternoon, we had the accountants talking to each other, and we we'd figured out, you know, we were going to join forces. And so for me, it was like going public without even having to go public. You know, I just cashed out, and it was great. And at the time was right because I I love starting companies. I, I love the the uncertainty and the you know the fear that that comes into the new business but, but i really don't like being in corporate america
0: yeah no that's fair enough are you able to share the details of the sale
1: well it was a publicized down there but i, I don't talk about it on, you know on the air it, it was i made many millions of dollars you know that's all i'll say and uh it was it was just a fantastic
0: exit yeah okay awesome well fantastic um so a few questions we have to work towards wrapping up, Brian. Uh, this is a great okay. conversation, mate. Um, thanks. I'm curious. Uh, you said you had investors in the early stage, and then obviously you sold uh, twenty years later. What happened to the? Uh, did were those investors? Were like when you you know when when you get on investors, right? There is generally some sort of anticipation that you will sell. How how did you keep those investors at bay running the company for twenty years before you sold it? Or well, this
1: this is this is a really really important piece of information for the listeners. If you're starting out and you got friends and family that are bankrolling you, and you need to get bigger, this is usually the cycle. Okay, so I had some friends and family put in twenty grand at first, twenty thousand. Yes, and. And that lasted for about a year and a half, two years, and then – it was about four years. And then we had that $200,000 year of sales, and we instantly had to scramble for more product. Well, these investors, the original ones, couldn't they, – they didn't have any more money, so I had to get a second investor in, so we all had to dilute down to 50%. And then that guy bought a container of boots, which was about $100,000. And that was his investment. And then we needed to get a couple of containers and he didn't have any enough money to go any further. And so I had to find new investors, but they, and I did find some, but they didn't want the old ones hanging around. So I personally had to buy out the old investors just to be able to grow the business to the next phase. And then that one ran really well for about three or four years until now we're hitting four or five million and these guys didn't have the ability to bankroll it past that and so i was able to get new investors in but they didn't want the old investors (laughs) so each time i had to keep buying out the the old investors and and i had to pay dearly for that but the point is had i not done that my biggest problem was the bankers would not accept ug as a viable business number one it was fashion-driven in their mind. It was a fad. It'll never be around next year. Even after 10 years, they were saying, oh, it's a fad. It'll never be around next year. The other thing was it was highly seasonal. So our sales all happen in two or three months. And you know they knew that once we do the collections, we're dead for the next six or seven months until we sell again. And they knew that the more successful I was, the bigger requirement for cash was going to be for inventory. So... Even though I was a chartered accountant, I didn't really understand finance that well. And, and looking back, if I had to change one thing, I would have brought on a financier, you know, someone who knew the how to model uh, cash flow forecasting because it was a you know as an alien thing for me at the time. So anyway, back to the investors. There is no easy answer unless you have a product that sells twelve months of the year. And you can scale it. It's it's scalable on the internet. They're easy to bankroll. They're really easy to find one investor, and that be, that one investor will probably be there when you uh, do cash out in a big way. And that's that was always the ideal for me. I always thought each investor coming in would be there at the end. But circumstances were, were different for me, and, and it will be for many, many of you investors who are in the friends and family stage looking at the early angels. But again, if you have a really good solid product, service, whatever, that's 12 months around a year, so you've got your own cash flow, you're not beholden on anybody else uh, for inventory, then you can scale at your own pace, and, and that, that way you'll keep your investors
0: Hmm. yeah no, that's great advice. um another question. you talked about uh spirituality throughout your journey. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I just came to learn that you know the number of times I'd get goosebumps when I'd be faced with a momentous decision I, I'd make a choice and i or i'd I'd see like the the minute I saw that ad for for sheepskin boots and I, I just got so many goosebumps there because I, I I just knew here's a potential of a huge, huge business. And what I've come to believe is that that we've got this, this energy force inside us, and you can call it God or spirit or whatever it is, but it has some sort of pre-knowledge of where it wants to go with our lives. And every time we make a decision that's in alignment with that, sort of inner a, in a leading it sends us a message and the only way it can get to us is through this electrochemical system we call our body and it puts a tingle there and 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 i ask people in the audiences every time on stage i say you know who's who's had goosebumps and i would say every single person in the audience puts up their hand and I'm talking goosebumps in relation to a business decision and things like that. So I'd encourage your audience to, to uh, you know, just be aware of that happening. And if it is, if you do get the goosebumps, just go, oh, my God, what just happened then? And try and analyze it, and I'll bet you it'll be something of, of real importance. And then there's the other side of it, which is very philosophical. I have these four mantras that I've used Oh, for the last 20 years, I've been carrying these four forward in my daily plan, or I typed them out one day 20 years ago. And it's feast upon uncertainty, fatten upon disappointment, invigorate in the presence of difficulties, and enthuse over apparent defeat. And they sound like negatives, but in fact, they're the foremost positive statements that you can ever find. And it doesn't matter what happens in your business. If you can, you know, If it's a, just a horrible thing that happens, if you can feast upon the uncertainty of what's going to happen, or, or you know, get fed on the disappointment that you know it didn't work out the way you thought, and maybe next time it will. It's uncanny how fast things turn around. And, and there's another way of saying it, which is also in my book, which is the most disappointing disappointments will nearly always become your greatest blessings. And put in other words. You know, I asked the audience, you know, put your hand up if you had something really disastrous happen in the last 12 months, and now you look back and you think it's the best thing that ever happened. And <laughs> nearly 80% of the audience puts their hand up. So it's a really, really true uh, philosophical statement. The one people remember a year later is this one, and that is the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is live every day happily as a tadpole. And it's, it, it sounds really trite, but that's the most, that's probably the best bit of advice I could give to every entrepreneur starting up, because you're going to be in the infancy and you're going to be in the toddling stage. And if you can just live every day and now like a, like a tadpole, you know, time's going to come when you're going to look down and go, Oh shit, I've got legs. You know, I, I'm, I'm a frog and you won't even notice it happening as long as you're happily doing all the tadpole things.
0: Mm, love it. Awesome. Well, um, look, uh, we have to work towards wrapping up, Brian. This has been okay. an awesome okay. conversation, mate, but uh, question, um, where's the best people can find out more about your book, your work and everything else you do.
1: Sure. I have a, Website which is BrianSmithSpeaker.com. That's B-R-I-A-N SmithSpeaker.com, and you can get to me there if you know you're thinking of getting uh, a keynote going. I, I would love to come do a, a bunch of keynotes in Australia. Uh, I have done some already, but I, I really love coming and talking to the Australian audiences. And also, the book's available. The The Birth of a Brand uh, is available on that website, but you can also uh downloaded on amazon and it's turned out to be a really really good seller and a really fast read i think because most people are never sure i'm going to be around next chapter (laughs) so they tend to read it pretty quickly you know
0: Mm, awesome all right mate well look um we'll wrap there but i just wanted to say thank you so much for your time uh this is an awesome interview awesome conversation The Founder Podcast has come to a close, but it's not time to sleep. It's time to hustle. Download the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine for free right now by visiting foundermag.com slash Branson. Again, that's an absolutely free download of the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine containing an exclusive interview with the man himself. It's only available at foundermag.com slash Branson. So download it now and we'll see you next time on the Founder Podcast.